to episode eight of performing the episode eight of season five performing the arts my name is always is brian m davis today joining me is daniel ferens he is a filmmaker documentarian screenwriter producer a lot of all a lot of stuff if you are a fan of horror you know the name because he has produced he has written films like halloween six uh produced worked on two Emeryville projects, one that had just came out a few, uh, more than a few years ago. Uh, he's also been doing his own work as a filmmaker. Uh, and if you always wondered who the two posters in the background, he's also done two more than a handful of documentaries on horror related stuff, Never Sleep Again in His Name of Station. And so, yeah, I'm definitely talking to him today for this great episode. So. Daniel, how did you get into film? Hey, Brian, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on. First of all, I appreciate it. Um, well, how did I get into it? Uh, I, you know, I think just um, by pure um, drive um, and maybe a little insanity. Uh, <laughs> so, um, no, I just, I think I just grew up like a lot of, you know, you hear a lot of filmmakers, you know, bigger people than me talk about how you know they made their their home movies when they were kids and you know, I grew up in the age of still whether we still had super eight film um and graduated to VHS after that but uh so I'm dating myself there um but uh yeah you know I think it was just always a passion for me you know I was always like directing little plays at school and directing kids in the neighborhood making making little short films and and um you know horror became kind of my obsession when I was at 12, 13 years old. Um, it's a funny story. I had a, a babysitter <laughs> and I dragged her kicking and screaming to take us to see Friday the 13th part two, which traumatized me so much that I think I spent the entire summer with the lights on and not walking <laughs> past dark doorways. But, but uh, it's funny, you know, that was the year in 1981 where, you know, horror kind of went balls out, you know, it just all, it sort of really launched the year I guess the generation of the sequel you know from the Fridays yeah, yeah. and the Halloweens and then shortly after Elm Street came out so you know I really was kind of weaned on a diet of, of those movies um, and so it really started actually when I was 14 I you know had felt apparently I had you know graduated enough that I should be in the big leagues so I wrote a letter to Frank Mancuso Jr. who was the oh, producer wow. of the Friday the 13th films and Lo and behold, he wrote me back, um, which I never expected would happen. Um, and just wrote this, this incredibly just generous and, and encouraging letter. And he was, you know, apparently shocked that a 14 year old wrote whatever I wrote to him. I wrote it well enough that it got his attention. And actually, he said it was the first time he ever responded to a letter, a query about the series. So um so i kind of felt like there was a bit of a i don't know like i was i was uh you know kind of invited in by him and um even though i knew no one and i was you know growing up in a small small northern california town i kind of like you know threw caution to the wind when i was barely 18 and i moved to los angeles and started you know knocking on doors and showing scripts around and continued to write, work day jobs, did, did the usual thing that people do when they're starting. So that was the beginning of it. 
Now, since you mentioned 1981 and in, in the early 80s, uh, the, the early 80s slasher genre, especially going to like say 1985 or, or so, it, it was in a state of, uh, I, I don't want to say like, it, it, uh, before Freddy became like the more popular figurehead, it was always like, uh, oh, it's Friday the 13th. Like, it's weird because like everyone was, it's like, a lot of the stuff that came out was more geared towards Jason Voorhees, you know, uh, mass killers, that sort of thing too. And a lot of it had to do with parents being very, you know, upset as like, oh, you know, um, take for, uh, you know, take for instance, Silent Night, Deadly Night, a famous horror film where they had, they portrayed a Santa being a rapist and killer. And it wasn't like Santa Claus, Santa Claus. It was someone dressed as Santa Claus, mind you. And mm -hmm. then you have someone who mental, you know, uh, a character's mental capacity being shattered over one Christmas night and using the idea of having to be Santa Claus and then going around essentially murdering people. And there was mm -hmm. another movie, Christmas Evil, that I believe was maybe in the early 80s or maybe in a couple of years before that had the same problem where it's like, oh, you can't, it's a horror film that's portraying uh, Santa Claus as being, oh, kind of like a bad figure. When you were growing up around this time, did you have the same problems like, hey, I'm gonna go see a horror film, you know, and, you know, lo and behold, there'll be like maybe a couple of people maybe protesting or protesting this idea of you going to a horror film or was it just pretty open, mind is like oh okay you want to go see a horror film go see a horror film we're not gonna be uh we're not gonna stop you from going to see the movie are you talking about kind of society in general or are you talking yeah, about like my, my own uh, home my own upbringing yeah well not upbringing but at least stuff you probably saw in general because i know well i mean you know this all this whole uh, tradition of like holidays turned into you know you know, kind of for marketing reasons, like using holidays to kind of you know, launch horror films really began with Halloween. Yeah. I mean, there's no question about yeah. it. Um, you know, they turned this innocent childhood holiday on its head and created the ultimate boogeyman, Michael Myers. So, you know, everybody wanted to jump on that bandwagon in, in terms of, you know, the, the low budget, high return horror film. And that just became, you know, a genre unto itself. You know, the slasher genre of the 80s was really born from Halloween's success. And, you know, Friday the 13th was a result of that as well. And, and then there were all kinds of just imitators on and on and on. on. Like you mentioned, Year's e uh, there was New Year's Evil. There was, you know, uh, I mean, name a hundred of them. And there just goes, the list is endless, you know, from Terror Train to yeah. uh, uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Films and, you know, but that being said, but yeah, I mean, I remember there being, you know, talk shows where these kind of like women with helmet hair would get on and <laughs> protest and want to Phil Donahue and talk about how these were, you know, morally repugnant and they were ruining our society and children's minds were being warped. I don't know. I mean, there's always backlash when something yeah. hits that makes people uncomfortable or challenges them or, you know, but I just, you know, I think, I think for kids my age, for teenagers, these movies were fun. They were like rites of passage and we had fun with them. They were, you know, the quintessential date movie. It was like yeah. akin to riding a roller coaster. You know, we didn't, we didn't want to become serial killers because we watched them. 
Now, as a fan growing up, did you knew about the, the struggles that horror films would have go through with the MPAA and stuff like that too? Or did you figure, oh, you know, what they shot on film is what they had already shipped out to whatever? Or did you know about like the struggles that, oh, you know, this film has got to be rated X or, or they're trying to yeah. do at least a rated R thing? Um, I mean, you know, I think everybody was kind of aware of it. Uh, um, the irony being is that my very first, you know, kind of day job when I arrived in Los Angeles was working for the MPA. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, you know, yeah. got a firsthand look at that. And then it, what was fun about that job was that, you know, I mean, I wasn't part of the ratings board per se, but I worked in the office. And when they, whenever they would have a horror film, like even one of the Friday the 13th scenes, I remember like part seven, part eight, I was, I was working at the MPA at that time, the late eighties. And, um, and they would just invite me to the screening room to watch, you know, the original cut that they were about to, you know, eviscerate with their comments. Uh, so a lot of that stuff I actually did get to see like in private. Um, so that was kind of an education to itself, but as a, you know, like younger, you know, growing up in a small town and all that, I mean, I think I was aware of the censor board as they became known um, only to the extent that I was a fan of Fangoria magazine and there would be articles about things like that. So I was, you know, I was kind of aware of it because of that. And, and I do remember when Texas Chainsaw 2 came out, it came out as an unrated film. And, you know, it was, I remember there were like, you know, ushers standing in front of the entrance. So you couldn't get in unless you were, you know, 18 or something. So, or it was X-rated. I, I, I want to say it was unrated. But anyway, so, you know, I was, I was aware of it to that extent, but, you know, it wasn't until later that uh, when I actually worked for, <laughs> for, for that fascist organization <laughs> who actually made up a very nice people. Um, and I think they've become a lot more lenient over the years compared to what they were back in those days. I mean, they couldn't yeah, show anything. Now it's kind of pretty, you know, pretty, pretty liberal in terms of what they're, you know, allowing filmmakers yeah. to show. So. Anyway, it's weird because when you mentioned the MPAA, I was like, I was just thinking of uh, my brother and I just saw a spiral over the weekend and and Darren Lynn Bowsman said, oh, there was like a trap in there that was like too gruesome for the MPA to do. And I'm watching the film. I'm like, you know, there's, you know, like the one of the tra I'm not trying to give away some of the spoilers, but, uh, you know, uh, Lionsgate already uh, released the first clip, which was essentially the first couple of minutes of the film. And the first trap has to do with a person's tongue being you know compressed into mm -hmm. it yeah, i saw the movie last night actually oh okay so you know what i'm talking about so I'm, yeah, and, I'm, yeah. and i'm watching this i'm like i'm like they haven't really messed it's like and, I, and i'm watching through the phone I'm like there's a lot of stuff that's in here that could easily be trimmed down and stuff like that and still be like considered to be a hard r because mm -hmm. and i'm watching and then and then I'm kind of like remembering the stuff about the MPA about how like, you know, 30 years ago, they'd be very strict about all that stuff. And then it, it's weird how nowadays the MPAA is like, uh, it, it's, it's still a problem-ish thing where it's just like, if you're doing a horror movie or something that's like very lenient towards violence, they may be very okay with some of the things was, you know, like Tarantino has gotten away with a lot of stuff in some of his recent films that would be like very like almost x-rated but then you'd be watching a, a movie where it's like uh where 
it can be very PG thirteen is aside from maybe a maybe a brief nudity scene where it's just like oh it's like it's a brief nudity scene everything else is practically PG thirteen there's hardly any um, cursing or anything they'll just slap at it with an R rating because it has that one scene of nudity where it's just like it doesn't make any sense outside of um, that nudity scene in general but yeah it's well like, I think that's always that's that's American culture you know I mean they're offended by nude bodies but you know it's okay if you shoot somebody 20 times in the head uh, <laughs> so that gets into a whole other political debate that I don't want to touch on but you know I think I think that's you know things with the MPA I think they've become a little bit more lenient in their views um, I think violence has so permeated this country that you know I feel like Maybe there, I haven't worked with them for many years, obviously, so I don't, I don't know what the current, you know, kind of thresholds are for these things. But, you know, I think violence has just become so permissive and so pervasive that I think that the MPA maybe on some level kind of threw up their hands and said, okay, well, if this is what people want. We're going to just step aside. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, and I think that's, that's the struggle always between art and commerce and art and censorship, things like that. You know, th those questions have lived on for long before the 80s, you know, those, yeah, those things were going on from the beginning of the MB, you know, the motion picture industry. And I think and the MBAA was created to sort of stop the government from censoring material. And so they kind of created this governing board to kind of con control it themselves. And that's kind of the, was the birth of the MBAA. Um And they do a lot of other things from anti-piracy efforts to um, legal, um, cases to, um, you know, they're, they're, they're very active in Washington, D.C. So, you know, um, there's, there's a lot of lobbying that goes on with them, but, but um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's just, I think it's always a sign of the times, you know, in terms yeah. of how per permissive they become. Yeah, it, it's weird because when you talk about the MPA, you can be like, ah, it's like a double-edged sword where it's like you, you talk about the good stuff, but also you have to talk about the bad stuff too, where it's just like you just can't really talk about the MPAA without saying, oh, well, uh, you know, uh, aside from this one film, you know, blah, 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 blah and, or sometimes from another film, stuff like that too. So you, especially if you're a horror fan, you know about like the struggles a horror film has to go through with the MPAA, especially if mm -hmm. you especially if it's like a classic horror film, like you just mentioned, you know, Friday the 13th, uh, part seven and part eight, well, yeah, part seven and part seven was notoriously uh, famous for almost having X rating and stuff like that too, because some of the kills were like very, very graphic and long. Mm -hmm. and stuff like that too. For the time, you know, like today, yeah. the stuff that was in the, you know, uncut, you know, pre-MPAA, uh, interfered with, you know, version of part seven, but none of that would, nobody wouldn't even bat an eye at that today. It's just almost and, juvenile the way that, you, that it appears on screen. Like it's, it's stuff like that you could see on an episode of, you know, um, you know, whatever, the FBI or, you know, just it's network TV has pushed the envelope so far um, that, you know, the stuff that you see in the early Friday the 13th movies or the 80s Friday the 13th movies is just, it's its laughable by comparison, you know, okay. not to dismiss those movies. I love those yeah. movies. But, you know, I think that the gore and the way that the, the MPAA sort of reacted to, I'll just call it middle America, you know, <laughs> having an issue with these films, 
they, you know, today they wouldn't even bat an eye at half of what was submitted. It just would go, it would have gone right through. Like that sleeping bag kill, Jason could have slammed that guy against the, or that girl against the, the tree a hundred times and they wouldn't, they wouldn't care. They would, they would have gone through. Yeah. But in those uh, days they were, you know, again, like I think, you know, MPA is a political organization and they, and they react to the political climate of, of the, of the country. And, and I think that's part of what they do as a kind of a governing board for the movie industry, you know, and I think I can tell you just from my own, you know, knowing them, I mean, they're all parents of children, you know, that was one of the qualifications to be on that board, be a parent at the time. I don't know if it's the same now. Um, and, um, you know, there was just criteria, you know, if a movie had too many, you know, fuck yous in it, R. You know, if it's full frontal nudity, R, uh, depending on the extent of the sexual content, X. You know, so, you know, all of that stuff was almost like they had a, like a formula that they, they yeah, used their, their criteria. So anyway, but, but yeah, yeah, but the things have certainly changed and I think they've lightened up quite a bit. I think the things that I've seen in movies like Hostel and, you know, since, you know, the, the kind of the torture porn days have come upon us and luckily faded, um, that, um, yeah, I just have seen like a real change, sea change in the way that the board analyzes and approves or disapproves movies. So I don't know what to say. I, Spiral, I did see, and you know, I think there was there was gore in it. It, it I found it actually to be like saw light. Like it, it didn't yeah. really feel to me like, you know, other than the comparisons, you know, obviously the, the, the references to Jigsaw and things like that, but I just didn't think of it, just didn't really play to me like a traditional saw movie. It was almost like a police procedural with, um, you know, this kind of copycat, you know, jigsaw. I, I, and, but they didn't really emphasize like the original film series. One of my friends- you know, the, the traps, you know, they weren't, I did find them to be as honestly creative as the original series, you know. I think the thing with the hypodermic needles and falling into that pit, that's the one I always remember. Yeah, one of my friends actually had a great analogy for a Spiral and I forgot what they said exactly, but they basically said they basically uh, amounted to Spiral is almost like the U.S. Marshals of Saw, where it's like it's in the same universe, but it's a different type of uh, different type of movie. Whereas like, oh, well, U.S. Marshals is falling after the fugitive, but instead of the fugitive being more of a slick uh, chase movie, U.S. Marshals is more along the lines of a by the books procedure, like yeah, chase yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, this was, I mean, I think anybody going into see Spiral and expecting it to be like a, a thrilling horror film, I think they're going to be disappointed because it's not really the what, to me, what it was. I think it's got pieces of that, but it doesn't, for me, tonally, it was a little off. I didn't quite get what they were going for. You know, it's like, is this, are you telling a police procedural? Is this about, you know, obviously it's dealing with like police corruption and things like that that are so topical. But uh, I don't know. I I just felt like totally it was a little confusing. Like what were yeah. they, were, were they trying to tell us like, was it a thriller? Was it a horror film? Was it, I, you know, I just, I felt like I couldn't decide what it wanted to be. Now, and this is a good question for, as a screenwriter, um, and I've tried to do screenwriting myself, but it's a little hard to do because if it's, it's a project. Uh, as a screenwriter, you mentioned, you know, internally, you know, films that, you know, there are, and, you know, watching 
you know, thinking back on Spiral, and this is nothing against the, the writers themselves, but it does have like a tone problem where it does have like, it doesn't know if it's uh, something like a copycat where it's like, it's about a copycat, you know, um, a copycat serial killer, that sort of thing, was it a previous, previous procedure? So as a screenwriter, how do you uh, fit, you know, how, how do you make sure to keep that tone of, what type of genre you're doing. If you're doing a, a slasher film, you have to make sure it's, a, you know, it's like slasher format, that sort of thing too. Uh, if you're doing, you know, a documentary, uh, how do you keep everything in tone? Is like, do you, uh, like, do you follow a set of rules for each movie or is it just basically something similar to making sure I have to have this right tone? or not tone in general, but just like, make sure it's the right genre. There we go. Well, I mean, you know, it's, a lot of it's instinctive. I think, you know, as somebody who's, you know, grown up on the genre, you know, kind of, if anybody watches these movies, you see there's sort of a formula to them. Um, you know, I think, I think the challenge comes is when you're combining things, you know, like, like that movie, it's a good example of like, you know, they, they really spent a lot of time with Chris Rock and, and, and his comrades and the police force. And, you know, it was this sort of copycat jigsaw targeting, you know, kind of corrupt police men, women. And, um, you know, but I felt like, you know, I think I think that's the the struggle is is with genre. You have to you know kind of decide is it this or is it that. You just make a decision and hopefully you know you follow through on it and you, you deliver on the promise to the audience that that's the kind of movie they're going to go see. So I think some of it's just instinctive, like I said, but a lot of it too is just you know trying to um, stay true to some of the paradigms that that have existed for a long time. You know. Uh, Halloween, Friday the 13th, those movies, you know, have a formula. And I, when they divert necessarily from the formula, uh, like the Jason X, which I know has its fans, but, you know, that yeah. certainly didn't play like your traditional Friday the 13th. Uh, Halloween 3 broke the rules when they did 3, which, you know, has been the controversial one all these years. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think you have to sort of think about what the audience's expectations are. And, you know, you either gonna make that movie or you're gonna do something different, like like a Jason Goes to Hell, where you really take the formula and you, you blow it up literally at the beginning of the <laughs> uh, movie. Speaking of, well, I have a, I don't wanna go into how, how we yet, because I do have a question about uh, screenwriting again, because uh, uh, from your, at least from what I can gather, your first IMDb credit, or at least your first credit as a screenwriter, was a movie called Rave. Uh, from a yeah, different, Rave. Yeah. Yeah, it was just called, it was really. It was, it was just called Rave. Rave. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was remember because they have like this other title along with it, it like some sub It was like a stupid tagline that somehow it popped that, the title, but it wasn't. But a movie called Rave, and I no. was actually, and I was like, this is like, wait a minute. It's like, I, and I was reading a part. I was reading the plot too. It was like this is this is a movie about rave culture and stuff like that. And I watched the trailer. I'm like, this is, a, and it has a very Romeo Juliet thing too, where it's like, mm -hmm. and I mean, at least you know, because I'm a theater, uh, because I have a theater background, that sort of thing. So I could just imagine. Sometimes I'd be like, 
oh, it's like I, I could just see like some type of things where it's like <laughs> things falling into place. It's like, oh, there's that Romeo and Juliet um, uh, thing where someone's part of another culture, this person's part of another culture, they love each other, but you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, how did that uh, project come into place for you? Um, going back to the MPAA, I, I worked worked with a, a woman who was friends with a producer named Luigi Singolani, who had produced a lot of, you know, independent movies at that time. Um, she just was a personal friend of his. He had dinner with her one night and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm doing this movie called, we're going to call it Rave. And it's about, you know, this it was, it was a brand new thing at the time. It was very early 90s. Um, and he, he's like, I'm looking for a writer. And she's like, oh, you should meet this guy, Dan. It works at the office and he's a great writer and smart guy, young. Um, he'd be good for you. You should at least meet him. And that's how, that's how that happened. It was literally, I, I walked into the meeting and I met him and the director, who was a guy named Shabadou, uh, who sadly passed this past year, really young. Um, it's in the break-in movies from the 80s. Um, he was kind of one of the first kind of hip-hop, you know, street dancers, break dancers. Um, and this was his idea. And he had kind of partnered with Luigi as a producer and they needed somebody to write a script pretty in pretty short order. And they hired me to do it. That, that was how that happened. And they had read, you know, Luigi had read a couple things, samples of mine and um, thought I was good. And, and I got along with him. And a lot of times uh, winning a job in, in the entertainment business is just, you know, are you likable? Do you seem intelligent? Are you somebody that people want to work with? So that was, that was, that was how that happened. Now, did you know a lot of stuff about rave culture or was no. it? No, <laughs> nobody oh. did. They were brand new. Okay. I, mean, I have to, you know, Shabadou's idea, he came to, came to me with it and said, you know, he had written like a little outline. I got, you know, I have maybe a four or five page treatment. And I basically was tasked with like, go write, go write a script. And I did. And they made the movie. So, you know, to me, it was a thrill. I was like 22 years old and, you know. <laughs> And it was great. It was, it was, it was a lot of fun. And um, I just, I got to be on the set. I got to see how it was all done. Um, it was just, you know, it was just, there was like a thrill to see actors saying words that, you, wrote. you know, I think that there was like yeah, that you, excitement. That you too, like written down and stuff like that. Yeah. Too. Yeah. So maybe in a way it was like good preparation for me because Halloween six came not long after that. So. Uh, and speaking of Halloween six, uh, I, I, I wanted to ask like, how did you get from writing a movie about, you know, the rave culture or just about rave in general to essentially Halloween 6, where it's like, I'm like, that's a, you know, that's a, an amazing feat to go from, you know, working with someone like Shabadoo and, you know, dancing cultural and stuff like that to essentially working with, uh, to essentially working with another icon, Michael Myers. And well, I didn't work with him, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> with him. He's, actually, he's actually not real. Hey. It's Italian. No, no, no. no, but working with the character, I should say. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, like, how, is it the same thing where it's like they uh, sure, like you knew somebody or they knew you? <laughs> no, oh, okay. no, I didn't know anybody. Um, hardly. Um, no, like I said, I, I grew up in a small town and I, you know, loved horror films as a, as a kid. I made them. I, you know, at, when I saw Halloween and uh, I saw the original Halloween when it aired for the first time on, on network television in 1981. And it was the week before Halloween 2 opened theatrically. And I think it was, I was 12 years old. So um, it was after seeing Halloween 2 that I became this 
it just lit a fire in me in a way that it's hard to really explain. And I'm sure a lot of, you know, fellow Halloween nights out there will relate. You know, I just, it was, everything was Halloween, Halloween, Halloween to me. And I was making my own Halloween movies and junior high, high school, um, everything from Halloween party to the hospital of horrors to, you know, all <laughs> kinds of like crazy, crazy little short films that I recruited kids to star in anyway. But, um, it was actually after I've told this story a hundred times. Um, after I had seen Halloween five in the theater, the, we, the day it opened, and I remember declaring to the two friends that I saw the film with that I'm going to write Halloween six. I didn't know how I was going to do that. I didn't know Mustafa Akkad, the executive producer. I didn't know anybody. Uh, I wasn't friends with John Carpenter, so um, I just I didn't know how to do that. So what I remember what I did was I I um, Back in those days, they you know pre-internet, there was at any kind of like local newsstand in most of LA. Maybe there's other cities too, but in LA you could go to a newsstand and buy this thing called the Hollywood Creative Directory, and in it they listed like addresses and executive names for all the production companies in town. Hmm. Well, it didn't take much to learn that Trankus International Films and Galaxy International at the time were the companies behind these recent Halloween sequels. And I got the address on Sunset Boulevard. I wrote a letter to Ramsey Thomas, who was the producer of, I wrote a very nice letter, like kind of like the one I wrote to Frank Mancuso when I was a, a, you know, a young teenager. And um, lo and behold, Ramsey called me uh, and said, hey, you know, we are looking to do six right away and send me something that you'd like me to read. Well, so I bundled up a script. It wasn't rave. It was, it was a horror script that I had written, not Halloween, um, just an original piece that I'd written. I sent it off to him and I wait, like every, you know, every submission you hear that's that, you never hear anything. But he called me about, I don't know, a couple of weeks later and said, hey, I really like your style. I think this is really good. I think you're, you know, you're right. You know, I like your passion for it. Um, I really like appreciated your letter. So come in. I want you to meet Mustafa Akkad. So I, you know, wow. nearly dropped the phone and <laughs> couldn't believe that that this was actually happening. But um, so I spent the next couple of weeks, you know, digging into all kinds of stuff and going to like New Age bookstores and and finding like I just wanted to find out what that that mark was that they put on Michael's wrist in in five. Yeah, you know, it was like that that symbol. And so going, I'll never forget. I went to the Bodhi Tree bookstore and. LA and uh which doesn't exist anymore but um it's this big new age bookstore and I had drawn this thing that you know if I'd seen in this movie and and I remember the woman said I think that's a rune and and here here's a book and she handed me a book called Rune Magic by Donald Tyson I still have it and in it it talked about the, the thorn and what it was and it was like when it was applied upon a person it would li literally visit them with evil hmm. and I thought oh my god this is amazing so I took that and I took all, and then I just started like compiling all this research and I everything Halloween, everything that before, all my ideas for six, all my ideas for what should happen next, who all the characters were. I drew a family tree. I had a cover made that had Halloween 666 and I'd replaced the A with the thorn. So I had this whole like kind of, you know, presentation worked out. You know, now they call them pitch decks. Back then there was no name for that. Ah, okay. Uh, um, so 
you know, I, I, and I walked into the meeting with Mr. With Ramsey by my side and, and uh, I walked into this big office, just like you'd imagine. And there's Mr. Fakad with his big pipe and the Halloween posters all hung on the wall behind him. And I was, you know, all of, I was 19 at the time, I think, um, when I first met him. So um, yeah, um, it was crazy. So, and I met him for, I think it was like for, if the, if the meeting lasted 10 minutes, it was probably actually five minutes. Yes, me. Okay. A couple questions. I handed him my uh, my Bible, I'll call it, and I walked out. And I was like, "That's the end of that." And then, long, long story in between. But five years later, my phone rang again, and it was him. And he's like, "You need to come in because we nobody can figure this out, and and we think maybe you can. Nobody, you know, we've had a bunch of scripts and a bunch of writers, and nobody's getting it. But hmm. you know, we always remembered you, so come in." And, and, I, and I went and, and I had a meeting with, with Mr. Cod and his son Malik, who's my age, and a producer named Paul Freeman, who had worked on four. And I think after that meeting, they just sort of said, I think he gets it. And I think the one thing that I said at that meeting that Mustafa responded to was, it's Rosemary's Baby meets Halloween. Hmm. And his eyes lit up when I said that. So it was kind of like when John Carpenter apparently pitched Halloween to him, the original movie, the same, he's pitched to the same man, his idea. It's the boogeyman murders babysitters. And that was the pitch. And I think Mustafa got excited by the simple, straightforward, relatable ideas. And so I think when I said that, it was like, okay, I, 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 get, where, I get where you're going with it. And so often write us treatment I wrote the treatment in I don't know a few days and it was huge I mean it was like 30 40 page long thing that you know I was trying to you know so young and I was so anxious to to be a part of this that I think I just you know threw everything but the kitchen sink in <laughs> and yeah, I like I imagine going forward he called me right away and said listen this is great but you've got enough material here for two movies <laughs> yeah so, I, I yeah, no, I'm sorry. No, I no, cut out for a second. No, 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 it's okay. No, uh, no, no. I just, you know, I, I'd had two, I'd had a, these two giant, you know, this, this voluminous giant, you know, kind of epic treatment that I had written for Halloween 6. But he said, you know, what I think is great is that you've given us enough for two movies. So the first half of this is Halloween 6. The second half is going to be Halloween 7. Hmm. So that was the where it began. And, and then I, you know, they were really kind of desperate at the time because they'd had so many other writers try to crack it um, and didn't, at least to his satisfaction. So, and Miramax was involved at that point. And it was like this whole big thing of like, they had to start pr production on this movie by October. And it was June when I met them of 94. So, I had not much time to draft to write. I think I, I think I wrote the first draft in maybe three weeks, and then you know a series of rewrites. But it was based on that script that they started cast. You know, putting all the pieces to produce the movie in Salt Lake City, and all of a sudden it was just it was a it was like a train that I was on, and it was running, it was rolling. So it was it was really thrilling. Um, when I say I was grateful to be there, that doesn't even begin to cover it. It was. Yeah. One of the most thrilling things that's ever happened to me. What strikes me as with Halloween Six is um, it's weird because 
when you look at it as a horror fan, it comes out at a time that is prior to Scream, but it's also coming out after uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. So it's like it had, and mm-hmm. if you watch the film, it does have the very almost self-awareness thing that you would see in a screen movie later, where it's like they're not like doing the whole um, catching other tropes or you know stay staying rules, but it's like it has that very sleek mm-hmm. nature that you will find in a screen movie later in. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the 90s, and I think things, people were becoming self-aware, you know, and I think cultural touchstones were being talked about more. You know, the internet was just, just beginning. I remember when we did Halloween 6, there was no AOL yet, but there were things like Prodigy and CompuServe, and you could, it was just at that point where you could kind of start communicating with the world at large. There weren't what we kind of call websites now, but there were, there were were online kind of chat forums and things like that. So, yeah. but you know, mm-hmm. I, I think maybe maybe I was aware enough of that. I, I think certainly I I took the notion of Michael Myers of being kind of like a cult figure, no pun intended, um, to a different <laughs> level where people in the town were talking about him by name. You know, there was the radio show where he was a topic of the conversation. You know, I put him, and they were comparing him to John, to Dahmer and Bundy and, Man, you know, it was, it was kind of placing him in the quote-unquote real world. Yeah. Because I think the previous movies hadn't really done that. You know, no, nobody had ever really talked about how he killed the economy of this town and everybody was afraid to celebrate how, you know, so he, he was this larger-than-life figure to the people of, of Haddonfield and the people of Illinois, really, and, and, and maybe even the country, because people were having these national conversations, you know, there was suddenly 24-hour news and things, so I thought, I don't know, maybe it wasn't like a conscious thing, but I, I think, yeah, I think, I think there was a self-awareness to Halloween 6. Uh, but, yeah, uh, like, I, like I said, it, it's, it's weird, because when you watch the film, there is like a self-awareness thing and it is almost very modern to the point where it well modern in the mid-90s type of thing mm-hmm. where you know th- there's a scene where right. Tommy, Tommy Doyle is on the computer and he's showing Carer a car like this is this is what happens because I, I watched Triple Girl and they always pronounce both car they pronounce it as both Kara and Cara at the same time. Yeah it's Kara Kara Spruce. Yeah so um she's so anyway Tommy's showing Kara like the computer and all that stuff, and it's and it's funny because you know somehow Tommy Doyle has able to find a site about the cult, uh, like a cult of Thor, that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. and if you look at the website, it's like it's it looks pretty like basic, like very '90s type of thing where it's like mm-hmm. it's like it has a very '90s aesthetic of a website. And well, like, wasn't a, it was actually it wasn't a website it was something he created it was his oh, own like CD, it was you know at the time we had things these things called cd roms and that's what he was working off of this 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 kind of own, it was like his own research he had kind of compiled and put together it's not a website it's it's, it's cd rom of tommy's research up tommy and characters and, and carer and the other strodes and stuff like that too uh one um, how did you, um, in, in terms of writing the characters, did you have this notion, okay, Tommy Doyle, 
if he grew up and still living in Highfield, like how much fucked up of a life would he have still had? Because, you know, when he was a kid, he witnessed uh, and encountered the boogeyman. He probably seen a couple of, you know, he's, he's seen dead people. He's seen a guy literally, you know, being shut off a roof and probably, ran, you know, run off on the street still, you know, whatnot. Uh, so like when you were writing Tommy Doyle, it was like, how much, like, did you still figure him to be still traumatic or were you working on the notion of, okay, yes, he has, tra yes, he has trauma, but he's just like, he's trying to still work past that trauma because there are other, how, you know, the later Halloween films do have that notion of characters that are still traumatic you know, they still have the trauma with them, but uh, they are still working past that trauma. Yeah, I mean, he was, I conceived of him as this kind of loner who didn't have too many friends, kind of like he was as a kid, you know, he was this lonely kid who, you know, was, was kind of bullied and, you know, uh, sort of an outcast. I think we got that impression from the first film and, um, nice little kid but you know i think i think yeah i think it was the the trauma that he had witnessed as a child and you know having had the boogeyman come face to face and having had him invade his own home and try to murder his babysitter and <laughs> so yeah. i think all of those things are true yeah i think I, and that that was the the conceit of, of the character that he was kind of a you know a damaged goods kind of guy who's living sort of in this place of you know kind of solitude and living in this little rented room in this boarding house across the street and you know I just kind of wanted to play with the mythology of that neighborhood and you know kind of what was what happened that night that Michael murdered his sister in 1963 and you know there's that whole beginning of the, the first shot of the original movie is it's that POV coming directly across the street toward yeah, the Myers yeah. house and I that's where I sort of played with the notion of oh what if he was visiting the old lady across the street and yeah. she had something to do with this coven and she inducted him into this. Um, so that was, that was the beginning of it all. And, and again, you know, the, the, the touch point was Rosemary's baby where you find out through the story that all of the people that are seemingly nice neighbors are actually Satanists. So yeah. that was kind of the beginning of it all. That's yeah, but Tommy was to, to represent that, and also because you know, obviously Donald Pleasance was really getting up there in years. Yeah, he needed kind of, and we talked about this. You know, a character that he would. You always said this to pass pass the torch. You know, so we needed that other kind of Van Helsing, a kind of a slightly obsessed guy or girl. Uh, maybe today it would be well, Laurie has become that in a way. New movies. Yeah. Um, but. Um, yeah, that was always the idea is that, 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 that the Tommy Doyle character would kind of take on the mantle from Donald uh, Pleasance. He was just so wonderful and incredible to have, have as part now, of our film. And, uh, I, I do have to ask about Donald Pleasance. Uh, and you mentioned he was getting up in age. And in the last movie before Six, you know, they, they show that, you know, uh, Dr. Loomis is being the shit out of Michael Myers with a two by four. And then as he's like, about to and as he's like laying on the final you know hits he's like he has like a parent heart attack or in a halloween canon lore he has like essentially a stroke uh when you were working with the idea of writing dr loomis did you have this idea of okay i'm gonna have dr loomis in the background or at least in the foreground but still play an important character the same the you know the this well 
Yeah, so essentially, no, is no, I mean, I, yeah, we had, I, when I found out that Donald, uh, because you know, who wouldn't you know want to jump at the chance of writing that role for him? And so I think to me, the most daunting part of my job was when I got to the scenes luminous like how do I write this dialogue I mean what John Carpenter wrote in the original movie and even in two was fantastic you know and I think that he came almost like Virian character in, in his hands and I just didn't think that I was qualified to do it so I remember struggling a lot and not feeling worthy of, of this and I was very nervous about the fact that the script was going to go to him but those fears were quickly you know allayed when his his agent, who's this little lady in London who had represented him for years, this, this, this older lady. And uh, all the producers and said that she read the script, but she slept with the lights on because it scared her so much. Um, it was just a thrill. You know, he picked up the phone, called me and said, you know, this is the best of the, of the series that I, you know, since the original, this is the best script I've read. So thank you for writing this and I'm thrilled to be a part of it and I uh, can't wait to get going. Uh, like I said, I, I feel like Halloween 6 will be a lot of just a question, so forgive me if I keep on asking more questions about okay. Thank you. Uh, uh, so, I think uh, leading towards the big character change is essentially Michael Myers. Uh, and I know, and this is another question I'll be asking later, which is essentially the producer's cut, and uh, the direction Michael Myers has in both the theatrical cut and the producer's cut, but in writing Michael Myers, did you have a feeling of, okay, you know, I'm actually writing a character that I've known for the past, like say 20 odd years or something to that effect. And what, was it essentially the same uh, notions of like writing, you know, Donald Pleasance as Loomis, where it's like, you know, I'm actually writing Michael Myers. I don't want to really mess this up. Or was it just coming in like very second-handed, I mean, second nature, where it's just like, it actually just felt, you know, actually flowed and actually, you know, it's like, it's more, much more easier than, it's like writing Michael Myers is much easier than you think it would be. It's not easy. Um... Because we were, you know, we we're going in a different territory with this one. You know, we were introducing story elements and threads that what am I really what I was attempting to do, I don't know that I was successful. I don't think the final movie was that successful in doing it, was to kind of take all of these threads of story and characters that had been introduced from one and two and four and five and trying to bring them all together into one cohesive. Thing. Cohesive is not what this movie was <laughs> for a whole bunch of reasons. It was to try to take all of these threads, these story threads and ideas and characters that I felt like, you know, there was one and two that really established the world of, of the characters. And then four, you know, picked it up after three was sort of a misstep um, for fans that wanted more Michael Myers. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, you know, it, it was really challenging because we're doing a lot of things. We're packing a lot of story into a, a short film, short film, but a, you know, a film that was still, you know, a 90 minute movie, a theatrical movie, but we didn't, um, I, I wasn't daunted necessarily. I mean, I knew what Michael Myers was going to do. He was going to kill a lot of people and 
never say anything. So <laughs> there's no difficulty with that. I think it was just a matter of kind of placing the story in a way and reintroducing it for an audience, you know, who hadn't had a Halloween movie in would have been six years between five and six. Yeah. So I think it was bringing it back and it was also kind of introducing us to a bunch of different characters as we went through it. And then in the bigger worshiping this serial killer. Um, so yeah, I think all, all, of, all of those things were really challenging, not an easy script to write, went through a lot of drafts. And then, you know, it was a lot of the, as I've talked about this for so many articles and things over the years, but you know, the studio just kind of came in and ran a lot of interference and, and I felt like stuck their nose into things they really shouldn't have, um, like not casting Daniel Harris and the role of Jamie. And, you know, it was a whole bunch of things. So. It was, I, my eyes were quickly opened that they weren't going to make the movie I'd written. They were going to make a movie that was convenient. Um, and, and I'm not referring to the Akkads or, or that group of people. I'm referring to Miramax and the, the kind of studio suit mentality that got involved in the movie. Yeah, I, I was actually going to ask about the studio and stuff like that too, because uh, it's weird because whenever you think of studio interference, Miramax, Dementia Films, almost is like very hand in hand. And well, they're the same, they were the same company. Dimension yeah. and Miramax were the same. You know, it was yeah. the Weinsteins, and we know how that all turned out, sadly. Yeah. Um, but no, it was it was it was not a filmmaker friendly environment. I felt um, I felt that I was not really given much of a voice, except for the Akkads, who always sort of championed my work and um, Malik and his dad, Mustafa, uh, God rest his soul. We, you know, I felt like it was like a us versus yeah. them scenario a lot of times. Um, and um, it just didn't, you know, it just didn't work. And I think it was the beginning of a lot of problems, you know, all the movies that were financed by Dimension and were, you know, fortunately the Akkads had signed a contract where if they made a greenlit another sequel within a certain period of time, they would continue you know, yeah. right. So it was always frustrating because the Akkads, I think after six had just wished they would go away. Um, but they, they, they saw the, the, the money involved and they didn't want to give up on the title. So they continued to green light these movies. Um, but it was, it was always a very contentious relationship from what I understand. Um, yeah. And, and for me, it was not so much contentious. I never really dealt with Weinstein directly, but it was just knowing that a lot of things were being sacrificed, um, again, pardon the pun, uh, for budgetary reasons, but also just, you know, things that just didn't make any sense. Like, why why wouldn't you give Daniel Harris the role when she wanted to play it? She was signed on to do it. And then at the last minute, they started messing around with how much money they were going to pay her. It was just ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of well, not speaking up, but in the projection, uh, in tune to uh, to producers, where, okay, I kind of joked with a former guest of my Yoko that for the longest years, like we were talking about the Snyder Cut, and I joked that like there was a Snyder Cut in my youth, which was essentially Halloween Six, mm -hmm. where it had a producer's cut, which now will probably be like a extended cut or something to that effect where it's like it's 
it's essentially the same movie, but it's like they add new scenes or they restructure the scenes or it's uh, it's not really director's cut, that sort of thing too, where it's like, okay. when you, as a screenwriter, and there are, and there's like studio interference, and then suddenly you have to go, oh, by the way, um, we need you to go and, you know, rewrite the last act of the, uh, of the movie because we screen tested everything. And because I'm not sure if it was screen test, that was the problem. I mean, it could be, I'm not sure, or it could be just- Yeah, like there, was, there was a test. They did a test screening, it didn't test well. Um, you know, uh, I knew, I think we all knew that the movie needed some, some overhauling. Um, but I guess what I didn't anticipate was that they were going to overhaul to that extent and in that direction creatively. It just like they suddenly were turning it into a different movie. And it was just bizarre, you know, like the whole experience of those reshoots, I think, you know, it's been rumored for years that Paul Rudd just hated making the movie and was so like, no, he actually didn't. He was a huge, huge fan and a huge champion of the movie and the script that he signed on to do. And then when they, kind of brought him in to do these reshoots, he felt like, wait a minute, what happened to the story that we were telling? Like, that was better. And that's what I wanted to make. And, and you know, and so he, I think like me and a lot of us, you know, who were much younger at the time, uh, you know, we're just feeling the frustration of being forced into this weird kind of I didn't even know what to call it, this alternative universe of what the movie was originally yeah. intended to be. And like I said before, it's like I joked that for the for longest years that, I mean, I joked to my guests that it was like the Sonic Hub, but looking on it, it was a, like a, a, the Sonic Hub of horror, where it's like, it was this version of a film that was essentially not looked, you know, looked away because, oh, you know, it was a work print, it's not really the finished film, and then, and then, mm. And then, and then finally, the producer's cut was finally released. Maybe what was this? Several years ago. Yeah, um, yeah. I was I was very you know involved in tracking down all the elements for Shout Factory, and I was I was very involved in in getting that finally done. I mean, they really came to me and said we were going to finally do this. I was like, thank God. Now I don't have to get emails every day from somebody, uh, some fan around the world, wondering when it's going to ever be legitimately released. They did a great job. I mean, it looks great. It sounded great. Uh, I, it, it, it looked like a, a real movie. So I was happy that they were able to find the pieces of it, put it all together like that. Now, uh, I, I think you kind of like answered your own question, answered this question before, but between the theatrical cut and the producer's cut, which do you prefer? Well, without question, the producer's cut, however, you know, to me, it's still has all of the dings that it had when we first finished it, you know, which was, it needs an overhaul needs to be rethought, but in a way that still kind of, you know, word is, you know, that, that, that still attends to what the, the movie was intended to be. So, you know, that's, that's the problem with the producer's cut. It still feels unfinished to me. Yeah. Like you, it's like from what I've seen and it, it does feel like a finished film but there are stuff around where it's like they, there's like more stuff to be talked about yeah or, well there's like, just a lot of stuff that either got cut before we ever shot it or the, you know just for time and and other reasons there were weather problems when they made the movie it was snowing out through most of it <laughs> so you couldn't have snow on halloween so you know a lot of things got kind of 
changed or or you know ended up not in front of the cameras because of those reasons. So it was, you know, it was a little frustrating, I think, in terms of, you know, just me being the writer and I not didn't have the creative control that you'd want. Um, you know, in retrospect now, you know, knowing what I know, I would have lobbied harder to direct the film and yeah, made it my yeah. own because I, uh, I feel like I would have done a better job. And I'm pretty sure nowadays you could probably uh, gather as much uh in well much support and uh, and this is probably what I'll, i'd be asking later since i know you produce your own work and direct your own work and write your own mm -hmm. work yeah you, know, you could easily just produce and direct your own like halloween thing that isn't uh, like something that isn't part of the halloween series but still part of the halloween series by by association i mean it's not like it's the same movie but it's more along the lines of it's essentially the same script or at least the same style, uh, same style story that I was trying to tell. But yeah, uh, oh, uh, I guess in a way that's, because I, if I talk more about Halloween 6, I, I feel like this is probably the, 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 the uh, as long as you were joking before, it's like, oh, we have a, like, like enough for two podcasts. One half will be about Halloween 6, the other half will be about your other career. But mm -hmm. But with Halloween 6 and with the way it played out, okay, and this goes with the other Halloweens, did you know, it was like with Halloween H2O did you, or Halloween 7 at that point, did you know like where the series would be going after Halloween 6 or did, was it just going to be like, okay, you know, I've, or did you know it would be like, it would be very weird just going forward because with Halloween 7, it'll be like focusing on Tommy and stuff like that too. Or, and then suddenly it became a full on reboot where it's like, oh, now it's just gonna be following after Halloween 2. And then, and then the idea of falling after Tommy kind of like ended up essentially going into the comics because there, uh, around that time, they actually, there was Halloween comics and then, and Essentially, it's an actually interesting version of like an alternate version of what if with Michael Myers and then stuff like that too, where it's like, I'm trying to remember a lot about it, but one of the twists ends up essentially being that one Michael Myers, uh, one shape ended up being Lori herself, but I'm trying to remember how that happens because of, so it's like she right. fakes yeah, I was I was kind of in, loosely involved with those comic adaptations. Some of it was taken from a the the treatment that I told you about that was yeah. since seven combined. Um, the old colleague of mine, Phil Nutman, came to me and said, "Hey, we'd like to do something with Halloween. You're the expert." So um, he was working with a company called Chaos Comics, I believe was the name. And so they essentially, I, you know, they took what I had written as a Halloween seven treatment and loosely adapted that into a comic or a couple of them. So yeah, those were kind of cool. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I, after six came out and it was disappointing to everyone, there was no, I don't think any discussion about continuing the story. It didn't surprise me in the least that they rebooted it. And the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis wanted to revisit it was a no brainer. Um, and that was a smart idea from a business sense. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised. It was disappointing, of course, because I would love yeah. to have made that that follow up movie if we had made a proper Halloween six. But um, you know, I was glad to have been there when I was there. As a Halloween fan, especially someone who has worked on the Halloween series, uh, and and you basically witnessed at least three ver- uh, three reboots. You had Halloween H two O and Halloween Resurrection, essentially following the story out of Laurie Strode. Then you had. Rob Zombie's Halloween and ha- Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. And then finally, you have Halloween, Halloween Kills, and Halloween Ends, essentially following another story of, of Laurie Strode, falling directly after the first Halloween and just mm-hmm. ignoring essentially all the others. As yeah. a fan and person who worked on the movies, like, did you work, did, like, did you? imagine okay like this is the type of stuff that i would love to see everywhere else or was like like in terms of being both a fan like what were your thoughts but also but as a person who worked on the film on the films or at least on halloween what were your thoughts as a screenwriter for those films there we go and not a question because essentially um, what i'm trying to ask is as a fan, like, what did you enjoy about these three reboots? And as a person who has worked on the Halloween series and screenwriter, like, what did you think as, like, on, like, the production, like, story-wise, uh, storyline-wise there? I mean, yeah. you know, listen, I, I, I know how hard it is to write one of these. You know, the original movie was a success because it was unique and it was original. And anything that anybody does is going to be compared to that. So that's not an easy task. So I always you know, applaud any filmmaker who can, I don't know, try to step into those shoes and, and, and do a pretty good job of it. I mean, like any fan, I mean, I probably have favorites and least favorites of, of all of that. I'm not going to, you know, demean anybody's uh, or impugn anybody's work. Um, you know, I wasn't particularly a fan of the Rob Zombie incarnation. Um, I just felt like it was kind of like a different franchise in a sense, you know, starting off in a different way. You know, it's, it's just a different sensibility than I felt like what the original movies were about. Um, doesn't make it any less valid. I think that, that those movies have have their fans. It's uh, like Halloween 3 has its fans and, you know, um, Halloween 6 has its fans. You know, I, so I, I'm just never one to kind of say what's good and what's bad. I mean, for me, you know, I, I thought H2O was clever, but I felt like it also kind of suffered a little bit from screamitis. You know, yeah. used a lot of its soundtrack and I think it's wink wink to the audience was maybe for me a little too broad you know it became a little comical in a sense um but that was the time you know it wasn't it was it was yeah I mean Dimension Miramax had made Scream it was a big success they brought Kevin Williamson in to do some work on the script for Halloween H2O so it had that you know that fingerprint on it it made sense um resurrection i felt like well you know they tried something different didn't wasn't i don't think that was that successful and then they did the rob zombies and and now obviously that is super success with this this last one and i think probably the next one will be very successful i think i think you know in a way like you know what for me what i can only talk about my experience was the fact that we had donald pleasance on set was was made it really special he was was the last movie he did in in the franchise um the fact that i got to meet with him and he got to i got the experience of him saying my words that i was a 24 year old writer at the time who had his dream fulfilled by having this opportunity so to me it was all just a gift and it's started a career that now has lasted over you know 25 years so 
I have nothing but, you know, fond memories of all of it. And um, yeah. despite the frustrating aspects of it and things that I would have loved to have done differently um, had I had more say in the matter, but, you know, listen, it was, it was truly a gift that changed my life. So I, that's, that's what I have to say. Yeah. And I do agree because, you know, it's, there's always that one uh, project of yours in your past that has always be, that would always be a grateful experience to you because not only, not only did you learn a lot of lessons, you essentially got, uh, I, I want to say like great input, gr just great moments on, on a set of, it's like the same thing with uh, theater, where it's like the, I've worked with so many theater productions that the, I can't really name one because all the theater productions I've worked on have been a great, great fun of mine. It has been great fun, but there's always got to be that one theater production that would be, would always stick to my mind, both professionally and just on a more fun level. So I would definitely agree with you that Halloween 6 does feel like that that on a professional level it was a f interesting thing but uh, as a like on a more uh yeah with Halloween 6 I want to like with Halloween 6 it does sound like on a professional level it was an interesting time but on a more um experience level it was much more uh it had a very fond, you have a very fondness in it. In it. There we go. Yeah, no, I do. I have great fondness. You know, I mean, it was, we're all young. We're all just starting out, you know, we're all kids, you know, running around making a movie with, you know, this kind of great um, lineage attached to it, you know, and, and knowing that John Carpenter themes were going to be attached to this film. And, and I was going to, you know, meet Alan Howarth, who had scored all of the sequels and, um, that I got to work with Marianne Hagen, who was just, I thought, wonderful and, and became a good friend. And, and obviously Paul Rudd, who's a superstar now, just, yeah. we're all just starting out. And, um, you know, it was, it was just, a, a, I look at it as like a time capsule of my life and I'm just eternally grateful. Great. Uh, now, following Halloween 6, uh, where did you go in terms of your screenwriting? Because I know we were just talking to us before is that uh, I'm not sure if it was your next credit, but a few, a full, a few films after that, you produced The Haunting in Connecticut. Uh -huh. Yep. Uh, I remember actually seeing uh, trailers for that, and this was coming up at a time where like ghost stories sort of were starting to come on and come back. It wasn't uh -huh. before uh, paranormal activity where it kind of like springboarded everything back to not where it was like oh it was found footage all that you know it was found mm -hmm. footage and stuff like that too it was like the mid 90s i'm not the mid 90s <laughs> oh my god the mid 2000s uh there was like a springboard of paranormal movies that were coming out at the same time you had the amityville horror by platinum dunes you had the uh, haunting in Connecticut. Uh, you had the Ring, uh, basically uh, the Grudge. Uh, basically, yeah, things that were essentially springboard, uh, like the paranormal movies that were coming out in the two thousands, especially in the early to mid two thousands, were changing the way the horror uh, horror was perceived because it was now more 
it was like less R-rated movies and more geared towards PG, well, I wouldn't say PG-13 crowds, but at least geared towards PG-13s and making the scares more like actual scared, like, you know, actual, like focus on the scares rather than the gore. Um, how did you come up to getting, how did you actually produce uh, The Haunting of the Canada? In a very- I, um, I, um, well, goes back to a while before that, I had dipped um, my toe into the documentary pool of, of, of filmmaking. And I had actually, year 2000, I had uh, written, directed, produced a two hour uh, documentary for that ended up on the History Channel on the Amityville Horror um, yeah. story. Um, and it aired on Halloween night. So that was kind of perfect. And, um, and it was kind of the beginning of my interest in that side of horror so um anyway um there was another documentary that aired called a haunting in connecticut and i had remembered after watching it and thinking it was a great documentary this discovery channel um that i had read a book i, I want to say way back in high school called in a dark place um it was about the same story and it, and it, it was it was a book that was so riveting and terrifying i remember sleeping again, sleeping with the lights on. I was a pretty scared kid. So um, anyway, so yeah, I remembered it and I thought how, how interesting this would be um, to make a movie out of this. We had, because of the documentary, I had developed a, a long friendship and, and business relationship with George Lutz who had lived in the Amityville house and had oh, controlled wow. the rights to the sequels for Amityville. So during those years, we were trying to get something off the ground, but then um, this this other documentary came across my plate, I should say, uh, I would say, and it you know it was interesting. I thought it was relatable because of the concept of this young boy with with cancer and his mother's trying to save him, and sort of out of desperation, she rents this house just to be closer to the hospital because he was so sick. Um, so just, I thought that story was something a lot of people would relate to. So um, I did some detective work, um, which I've become very good at tracking people down, um, and which later came into play when I did the Nightmare on Elm Street documentary. But um, yeah, so I was able to find the family that, that the story, The Haunting of Connecticut was based on their, their true story, at least it was true to them. Uh, um, and I convinced them that, hey, we should, we should work together and try to make a movie out of this. And they thought it was a good idea. And so with my management company at the time, um, a guy named Andy Trapani really took the lead and we ran around with it for a little while and ended up getting a company called Gold Circle Interested. And they developed a script with some different writers. I was working on something else at the time. Um, so I wasn't able to write the, the, the draft, the first draft. Mm -hmm. um, I'd written a treatment for it at one point. Um, and it just kind of started to come together. It took a while, you know, it was probably about a year or two in development. And then um, Lionsgate got interested in it. And off we went to Canada and made the movie there in Winnipeg. And it came out and it was just out of the blue. I mean, I talk about a test screen. We tested that movie and I was there and it was through like the roof, it was through the roof. The numbers were fantastic. It was in somewhere in the eighties or maybe even low nineties. So they knew that they had sort of a, a little hit on their hands. So right then and there was decided we'd get a big theatrical release and, and it came out and it, I think it was like the number two movie that, that weekend and it brought in like $25 million and, and ended up making, you know, a lot more. So 
um, yeah, and it was it was it was a really cool, gratifying project to be a part of. Yeah, because uh, it's like, as I said, it's like I remember the trailers of hunting in Connecticut, but I, I was like I rarely remember a lot outside of the poster, which was essentially yeah, uh, the I, ectoplasm I, and the coming out of the kid's mouth. Yeah, and I'm like, sometimes when you're looking at a poster, it, it's a good way to sell. Uh, sell a movie because sometimes you know you can have and the weird thing is like nowadays if you look at a poster for uh sorry if you're looking at a poster for uh say like a a marvel movie or dc movie which i'm not knocking uh knocking against them it's like it's very overcrowded with a lot of characters but if you're looking at a, a at a store, um, at a horror poster, you sometimes just need like maybe one character or just one location that would really, or maybe even one set piece that would be like the, the notion of what you could mm -hmm. expect from this. I remember seeing the poster for Poker Guys, you know, Poker Guys, the remake, and it was just basically Poker Guys, and it was just a clown, and you kind of like, oh. The clown is going to be the forefront of this thing. It's like one, if you ever seen the original Poker Case, you know what the clown is about. And then it's like sometimes when you're doing a poster work for marketing, you always have to have something that's like very, very um, markable about it. And it's, and seeing the kid and wherever it's like coming out of his mouth is like a very, very um, strong image to see because one, you don't know what to expect because you know it's like it's a haunting in Connecticut, and you don't, and you just see this kid looking at, looking in pain, and then you just see whatever is coming out of his mouth. Is going my God, what, you know one, you're kind of like very con like one, you want to see what's like what got to that point, but also it gets more people to actually go see a film because. Well, that's the whole idea of marketing is to hook the audience into wanting to see your product so uh but yeah i give lionsgate full credit for that poster um it was one of the very first i guess you know lenticular motion posters so if you went to a mall and you saw that poster yeah. it would actually move you know that ectoplasm would erupt from his mouth and it would be oh, like animated so it was really inventive um and it definitely drew audiences to theaters um we were certainly you know pre-conjuring and you know the big wave of sort of supernatural movies that followed us but um yeah it was it was successful and um yeah it was really it was it was a fun fun project to be a part of uh now you mentioned the name before the uh, amityville and you worked on two projects uh uh two projects well three projects really or is it two or three yeah. uh well because you just mentioned... count the documentary I, I did a documentary and then i did two i, I was a I produced one of the films, more recent films, and then I wrote and directed and produced one of the the, the most recent films. Ah, okay. So yeah, so three, uh, so three things. Uh, so three. three, three, three projects with the name Amityville with my name on. Yeah, one being a documentary, <laughs> and yes, two exactly. So that's why I was yes. trying to get more because when you say projects and then you, it's like, like. I don't want to like dismiss documentaries as not being like a film because documentaries are a film. It's just that when you say it's like when you mention film, it's like are you talking about a regular film or a short film? So anyway, uh, 
how uh, going with Amityville, how did those two projects go uh, hand in hand? Because I know because it's weird because Amityville, The Awakening, I actually did something similar to that pro. Uh, it's weird because a few years ago in my media class uh, for our final project, we had to essentially in New York City, I mean, in New York State, uh, our project was essentially go through and pick out like very famous landmarks, right? People went like pick vineyards, uh, you know, the vineyard, um, Statue of Liberty, but the majority of the class, oddly enough, picked the Amityville house. I'm like, why would that be a, a shock to us? And, you know, my and my job was essentially to with marketing, right? So I had to be the one that would market the thing. So it's it's weird because to know that you actually was part. Of, I mean, it's funny. Well, not funny. It's interesting to note that you were actually part of the Amityville Horror, Amityville Horror Awakening movie when I was actually doing the thing for this class, promoting a film that essentially be, that was essentially uh, not released until more than a few years later. So it's, I mean, I could ask like, uh, I, I do want to ask like, your experience for that film, but going back to Amityville, uh, you mentioned George Lutz and him holding the rights to like the more movies. Did you essentially go to him for the rights and say, hey, I have an idea for an Amityville movie to, especially since it's been like say maybe ten years after the remake had uh, like came out, and it's well, like how did Awakening come to you know come into play? There we go. Okay. Uh, well, it was long before the remake that I met him. Um, the remake became the subject of a lot of litigation and a lot of problems. Fortunately. Um, Long, it's a very long story. I won't get into the, the details yeah, of all of yeah. it, but um, yeah, so it's, you know, I had done the documentary and, and George Wetz and I became kind of fast friends, you know, and I, and I respected him. I listened to his story. I, for those who claimed it was all a hoax and he made a bunch of money, I can certainly tell you that's not true. Um, you know, I wasn't there in 1975, 76 when this happened to his family when they lived in the house, but I can tell you that he and the family hold to the truth behind it. You know, whatever people want to say about it is that you know, I can tell you that just from my own personal relationship with him and the other members of the family that, you know, for them, it was a very real experience, um, regardless of, you know, what, you know, some people think it was a hoax because the movie portrayed things that couldn't have really happened. But that's a movie. Yeah. I think people don't understand there's a difference between what really happened and what the movie showed you. But in any event, you know, Came friends, and, and I think that there was a level of trust that developed. He was, you know, because of so many things that had been written about him and said about him, he was pretty mistrustful, I think, in general of, of, of the media. Um, so, you know, it was just becoming kind of personal friends. And then it just made natural sense that, you know, here I'm living in Los Angeles, that's what I do for a living, and I make films, and, um, you know, and he kind of entrusted me with, with, the rights that he held. And so I kind of ran with them for a little bit. And um, he, we made a deal that ended up of all places at, <laughs> back at Dimension. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, believe me, I wasn't thrilled. 
Um, <laughs> I knew that that was the death knell, um, but that's where it landed and it wasn't through any effort other people who had gotten involved. And, uh, and so we kind of got double-crossed, you know, a dimension took the rights and then they ended up burying the project we wanted to make in favor of teaming up with MGM on their remake with Platinum Dunes. So, you know, we were kind of cut off at the knees there for a bit. And then after that happened, and then George Lutz unfortunately died shortly after that. Um, but the family said, hey, you know, we don't really know this business. We don't really care um, so much about it. You know, the damage has really been done. Um, so if you want to do something with it, it's fine. You know, and they've kind of been very generous with me in terms of keeping me involved. But um, yeah, so then the awakening came because I went and I met with, um, with Jason Blum, who had just done the paranormal activity films and was, you know, kind of become, it was before it was really Blumhouse that yeah, everybody yeah. knows now, but, um, you know, he had a little office at the Paramount lot at the time. And I, and I went in with this, this pitch with a, a partner and, um, and I was like, wouldn't it be fun to like fool Jason? Blum? So I gave him this whole like song and dance, this plot, you know, of, of Amityville story and convinced him it was all true. And then he goes, Oh my God, I, like you, you have all this like material, da, 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 da. And I was like, yeah, but we can make it up, you know? <laughs> so, but he would, I, I fooled him so much. He was like, it was like that thing in, um, when, when Tom Cruise was on Oprah and he started jumping on her sofa. And, and uh, yeah, so it was right from there. We, we jumped off uh, the, into the pool and, and, and started to develop this idea, which ended up becoming The Awakening was not supposed to be that. And unfortunately, once again, Dimension got involved. Um, yeah. So I stayed sort of an arm's length away from all, all of it. Um, I wasn't particularly a fan of the direction I took that. And, um, you know, the movie was not successful. Um, it also came out at a time when, you know, all the controversy and litigation yeah. and, and um, you know, criminal activities were being exposed within that company. Rightfully, uh, so you know, and the and the Weinstein castle came tumbling down. So that movie was just sort of casualty, I think, of all of those those unfortunate circumstances. So you know, so it, it's out there. You know, people sort of like it. Um, but then another opportunity came up, and and to to write, direct, and produce a movie, pretty low budget. You know, it was was basically like you know, a movie made for seven hundred thousand um, dollars to make a movie that would chronicle the, the murders that had occurred in that house before the Lutzes had taken um, occupancy yeah, of it. The, the, uh, I was actually going to ask about- Yeah, the DeFeo murders. So, yeah, DeFeo. Um, and so, you know, kind of combining the rights that the Lutzes held with the, the idea of the DeFeo massacre that had, had occurred so tragically in that house, you know, so I went off and, and, and this all very happened very quickly in 20, I think it was 17, and we made this this movie called Amityville Murders, and it was a lot of fun to do. I got to direct it, write it. So it was kind of in a weird way, like not the movie I'd intended to make originally, but it was kind of fun to be able to do one and and create the house and yeah. and kind of go back and revisit some of the pieces of the story. So yeah, that's that's where all that was was kind of born. So uh, when writing really that, short, film, yeah, go ahead. When, yeah, when writing that film, did you? draw upon the inspiration of the previous Amityville films where I, I forgot, it, I, I think it was maybe Amityville 2 when they did focus on uh, DeFeo. Well, 
I mean, that wasn't really DeFeo. They changed no. the name. And I mean, yeah, I mean, certainly I was influenced by it to the extent that I cast, you know, Diane Franklin, who was kind of an 80s icon actress who played the sister in Amityville 2. And now I made her the mother. Um, we brought Burt Young back for a short cameo, again, playing her father, but now the grandfather. So mm -hmm. it was it was kind of winking, nodding to the family. I mean, the, the, not the family, but the fans of Amityville 2 and the family that was depicted in Amityville 2 but it wasn't trying to be in any way connected to any of that stuff. It, it, oh, okay. It's its own thing. Um, there'd never been a movie based on the DeFeo murders. Um, and, you know, ours certainly went into the realm of kind of the supernatural possibilities of it, but it wasn't intended to be a supernatural horror film like the Amityville Horror was. It was more of like, what if there was this at work in that house? What if he was, you know, so on drugs that he was envisioning these things you know and, and that he really and in the true story was that he he really felt like his his family was out to get him um hmm. at least that's what came out in the trial and he felt like killing them was his way of getting them before they got him you know that was part okay. of his defense so you know i i hinted at some of that in, in that movie but through that lens of like a guy who's very disturbed he'd been abused by his father who was and kind of living on the edge, you know, using a lot of heavy drugs, um, kind of a re rebel in his own way, but also sort of a victim of a very abusive, controlling dad. Um, yeah. But, you know, again, I think the questions always come up about that house. It's like, well, was the house itself sort of an influence on what occurred there? So, I mean, there's mysteries about those murders that have never been solved. Like, why were they all in their stomachs? Why did nobody get up and run for their lives when, when the gunshots were heard? Just none of it makes sense. So, you know, the movie was sort of about all of those things. Um, it was fun to do. Um, wasn't a big budget movie, but it was an opportunity to kind of revisit the name and do it in a way that I thought was kind of cool. Uh, now, it's, it's weird because have you actually thought about making like a, well, I won't say Never Sip Again or Crystal Lake Memories thing about the Amityville where it was like, a full-on documentary uh, thing about each of the film, mm. especially because there are a lot of them. I mean, it's, I like, mean, it's, it's just, like, it's kind of a joke now. It's like yeah, Amityville it's like, Beach, it's like, it's like whatever they had, like Amityville Shark Attack or something. I, I don't even know anymore. It's, here's like, people think those are Amityville movies. They're not. They're movies yeah. that people make with their iPhone in Scotland. And they use the word Amityville because it's just the name of a town. Yeah. What they can't do is tell a story that takes place in that house. But, but yeah. luckily, because we have certain rights to the sequels and, and things that we can, we can tell that, that story. We can tell the story of the house, what happened after the family left the house. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, this, of the Lutz story that hasn't been told. So, you know, it would be great if we could get a project off the ground that told the aftermath of their experiences there. Yeah. Uh, especially with the conjuring uh having, yeah yeah mm -hmm. you know and yep. and i wouldn't say like springing off the heels of the conjuring but definitely oh. picking up the paces after the conjuring because uh i don't know if it, it's if it's like the I, I know the second movie actually deals with the yeah we have that opening scene in the in the house where lorraine and it's true like the, the warrens had gone into the house with the Lutz's blessing um to investigate what might be there, what drove them out of that house after 28 years. So yeah, I think that first like hook scene, that opening scene of, of 
Conjuring 2 was Lorraine channeling the spirit of Ronald DeFeo and, and reliving the murders. So it was, it was an interesting scene because they were cleverly trying to avoid the rights that the Lexes have by involving ah. the murders. So they, it was kind of a bit of a, I don't know, it was like a, a little bit of a legal maneuver the way they did it. Um, but yeah, I know, I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, and I think, you know, Conjuring owns, owns, owes a huge debt to the Amityville horror. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's just always room and interesting um, and appetite interest in these things, these titles from audiences. But yeah, all this other, I call it the Amityville bullshit movies that yeah. have nothing to do with anything. I mean, if, 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 it, if it isn't set in that house, it's not an Amityville horror. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is true because, the, yeah, it, or at the very least, if it isn't a piece of the house, then. Well, it, yeah, but I mean, some reference to the people whose lives were affected by it. It's like, you know, it's like, again, you, you can call a movie Halloween, but you can't make it about Michael Myers because you don't own that. Yeah. Uh, oh, and again, speaking of horror, again, I would like to ask about the, the documentaries, both his name was Jason Never Sleep Again and Crystal Lake Memories. Memories, yeah. Uh, yep. So now, uh, we were just talking about this before, before we started uh, talking, and he said, his name was Jason was more like a, it wasn't like the best one, because it was more like a, com a compressed version yes. of the story itself, of the right. story. But right. it's like memories, that's an eight hour documentary. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's like something you will watch. Well, it's uh, how it should have been done in the first place. Just the people who were involved in it didn't see it that way um, and didn't uh, want to support that vision of it. So I just went back later and fixed it. That's really what I did. <laughs> Right. So, like a lot of the interviews came from his name was Jason. They're just the interviews that you never really got to see um, oh, because it was cut so short and so kind of like cut like a like a VH1 special, you know, as opposed to being like a like a real serious like documentary on the making of like Friday Thirteenth. I had been involved in the book with Peter Brackey of Crystal Lake Memories. I had edited it and you know once it co-authored it, so it's his work completely. But I was really involved in in the making of that book with Pete, and um, so when it came time to revisit it, we had done his name was Jason after the book came out, and I just went to Peter at one point. I said, you know, would you mind if I use the name of the book um, as as the title of this documentary? That'll be this really epic kind of way his book was, you know, this this incredible like deep dive into everything that was Friday the Thirteenth. So I just wanted to put that on screen, and luckily he was on board, and our other partner Jeff Garrett was on board and um, we did it and um, and that was just right after the success we had with uh, Never Sleep Again which was you know the, at the time this unheard of four-hour <laughs> you know documentary yeah. on the making of the Elm Street films which was truly yeah. a labor of love we did it with no money no backing no permission from anybody we just went and made it. Now uh... In terms of making a documentary, especially about both Halloween and not Halloween, uh, especially about Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, I would imagine getting essentially almost everyone from either cast or crew and stuff like that would be a very, would be like legitimately hard uh, mm -hmm. because as a producer, you're trying to find people who may be retired you know, they could be like, I just don't want to do this, you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, stuff like that too. Well, we were, we were fortunate with, when we started with Never Sleep Again, uh, my 
longtime friend and, and um, creative partner, Tommy Hudson, um, had a, a very long-standing personal relationship with Heather Langenkamp, who was Nancy. Oh, awesome. And because Heather was involved from the beginning, it helped get Wes Craven to do an interview, God bless him, uh, and bringing Robert England in. And once you have those people, everybody else wants to jump on too. So yeah. it wasn't easy. Some of the people were very hard to find. I could make a documentary about what it took to find, you know, Mark Patton from part two. It was, yeah. insane. It was insane. Just just being able to find him was, he was unfindable. Yeah, Mark Patton was very much, I think, by by design. Now he's all over the place, which is fantastic. He made his own documentary about his experience. Which was I was awesome. just about your, uh, um, Yeah, so I just, you know, but it, I was really the one that found Mark and brought him to our studio to, to film. We had t-shirts made, like we found him. And um, it was just joyful. Like the whole experience of making that was just joyful, even though none of us were getting paid and we just did it as pure for the love of, of Freddie and, and all things nightmare on elm street so we just jumped in with like blindly hoping like well maybe other people like what we're doing you know and and uh so you know andrew cash who was the co-director and editor and buzz wallach who shot all of the interviews and all of the other pieces that we included and tommy and uh it was just just a very small group of us that just kind of threw caution to the wind and we, we just went out and made it uh now, like I was saying before, it was like, were there people who were legitimately, hard, like you just mentioned Mark Penn and Mark yeah. and, and his own documentary, he was talking about how he more or less uh, gotten away from the public eye. Were there mm -hmm. other actors who were hard to find because of the, because of the way, because with Nightmare on Elm Street, it's, it's weird because there's a lot of famous actors who have come from a nightmare on Elm Street, you know, like Johnny Depp, Lawrence Fishburg, uh, Patricia Arquette, you know. Well, and you notice those are the ones we didn't get. So not, yeah. not for want of trying, um, we certainly tried. Um, that being said, yeah, I mean, it's always hard to find people. It's, you know, a lot of these movies were at that time 20, 25 years old. So people move, you know, not everybody lives in Los Angeles. So, you know, and, and having very few resources, you know, we were able to, mostly find everybody it wasn't as much difficulty to find them as it was to wrangle a crew to get an interview film so and this is pre-zoom calls and things like that yeah. so it's really challenging in fact ronnie Yu was like in beijing china the director oh, of freddie wow. versus jason so i happened to find like one independent camera guy that was in town i think for the olympics and spoke english and so he's like yeah i'll totally do it i'm a i'm a a Freddie fan, so let me let me go meet with them. And they met at some restaurant in Beijing, I think, and that's how we got Ronnie Yu. And I was on, you know, the equivalent of like a Skype call. I guess it was Skype, but very primitive. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, those were the ways, we, you know, there were people who lived in the, the rural parts of Texas that we had to figure out how we're gonna get them on camera. There were people in Canada, there were people everywhere. So yeah, I think it was just wrangling a way to get everybody on camera when you don't really have a budget. But we figured it out. Now, between two, uh, both documentaries and, well, the, those three documentaries plus, with, yeah, but these three documentaries, yeah. uh, how did you do Freddy registration and not make it like the same information just told more than once? Whereas, you know, his name was Jason, I mean, it, No, I know what you're saying. 
Yeah, I know. Yeah. We, we, we specifically talked about that where we weren't going to repeat ourselves between the two shows. Um, we actually made one of the segments, the one for Chris Lake Mem Memories was all focused on Jason and the one on ah. um, from ne Never Sleep Again, we focused all the discussion on Freddie. So that's how we differentiated them. But so there's really no, I mean, some of the interviewers are the same or interviewees are the same, but um, we, we really made a conscious effort to not repeat the same information. Now, you did mention Zoom and Skype calls and like that, uh, especially nowadays where a lot more is done over the computer like this. Mm -hmm. uh, could you see yourself uh, trying to do a documentary over the computer, like, like, maybe. Say, yeah, like maybe. For, uh, for a documentary? I mean, who knows, you know? I mean, there's, there's such a different world we live in since the pandemic that, you know, I think people wouldn't be put off necessarily by something that looked like it was taken on a Zoom call. I mean, obviously, you know, you want some production value. You work really hard on those shows to make them look good. We didn't just put people in front of a bookcase or something. You know, we, we created like original backgrounds and green screen plates. And we really worked hard to make, make them look as good as we could for the resources that we had. And, yeah. you know, people that were local all came to a, a local, like a soundstage that we were able to rent um, very cheaply and put them in front of a green screen and then went out and shot a bunch of like really cool like home street style plates so that it looked like they were in freddie's boiler room or whatever yeah. um so but all that stuff you know it just it just takes a lot of time and a lot of work um and you know talked about films versus documentaries i actually find making documentaries a lot more difficult than making a traditional film a lot more what a lot more difficult Oh yeah, uh, it's. I had a screen, my screenwriting class a few years ago. Uh, one of my classmates was actually getting a, her document uh, a degree in documentary. Uh, a document. I think it was like an honorary degree that my co college had. That okay. it it was more like a like a certificate thing for it. So if you were like a yeah, it was a certificate in documentary. Okay. And she said that her documentary that she was doing was about her friend who I believe was battling cancer, but she had, but she was living in San Francisco. So she had, so she had to go and make time to leave New York City to go to San Francisco and speak to her for a few days and get as much footage as she could with her and then go back to New York to film, uh, to essentially add whatever footage she had with with the yeah with the footage she has so yeah i definitely do think that making a documentary is probably a lot more harder than a film because not only like the same thing with hosting and producing a podcast where it's just basically i you know am i would i be free at the same time as my guests or would my guests be free at the same time as it's all about scheduling and editing and stuff like that too and especially with documentaries you also have to employ a narrator is like how much would the narrator have to read off from, from a script uh so it's like even though you would think maybe a documentary would be a lot more easier to do it's a lot more horror when you probably uh, look about you know probably think about it because there are great documentaries out there and if you ask any other documentary director about it they're probably, they're probably like 
that was like five years of my life. And I imagine, you know, something like Crystal Lake Memories or Never Sleep Again was probably like a year or maybe even months of your life. And it would. Yeah, I know. It's just, it's, it's like an endless process. And when you're dealing with interviews of upwards of 100 people on these shows and, and running times of multiple, multiple hours, it's, it's just a recipe for driving yourself insane and trying to make some narrative thread so that it all works. You know, it doesn't all just fit together like a puzzle. It's, it's like having to fit it and make it breathe and make it feel organic and make it like you're still telling a story. And, you know, there's no scripted dialogue like in a, in a feature when you're cutting a feature, it's like, okay, they, they said these lines and, and here's how we're gonna cut that together. Don't know what you're gonna get until you've gotten it, the documentary. Yeah. So it's just trying to find that narrative through line to keep the story moving forward without repeating yourself endlessly or going back and making um, you know, points that maybe aren't as interesting as others and just editorializing the whole way. So it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's all documentaries are, they're certainly, you know, the production side is challenging because the, the number, especially the ones we did where there's so many people involved, but um, just trying to keep track of all of that and, and tell the story in a linear but entertaining way is definitely not easy. Not easy. A lot of people think they can do it. It's it's really not easy. Yeah, especially uh, especially if it's uh, a big series like uh, Friday the Thirteenth, the Halloween, or Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. Or... Yeah, where you've got like multiple multiple sequels and and years to to track with you know. Like I imagine, if someone decided to do a documentary about you know the Universal Monsters, you would have to go all the way at the beginning and then stop at you know the the last monster movies and then talk about you know the remakes that have this that, that came right. out yeah you have to kind of decide what your your like your focus is focus and, is and yeah and that would be challenging because nobody's alive so um yeah. but uh but yeah i mean i think that is one of the things and the fact that we did get these things done before you know the great west craven passed and you know it's like talk about time capsules. I mean, I, I hope that those shows as years go on become kind of time capsules of, of what, what they were, you know, what these films were about and who made them and how they got created. So, I mean, for me, that was just really fun and, and really an honor to be able to document that. Uh, to cut it short, I do have like three quick questions. One, uh, social media. Do you have any social media that you do want to plug like uh, Instagram? I yeah, I'm pretty findable. There's nothing I want to plug. I mean, you can just look me up on social media. Usually I'm friends with a lot of, you know, horror fans, uh, Halloween six fans, especially. Uh, I'm, I'm very easy to find on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, you just mentioned two projects. Uh, do you do you want to talk about those two projects? Uh, not uh, like a, two quick things about those two projects coming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm excited. Um, yeah, the first one is coming out. Um, both are going to be released theatrically by Fathom, um, which does kind of like these limited theatrical special event runs of, of films. And so, um, yeah, starting uh, the first one, I believe, is August 15th, there were thereabouts. Um, Fathom will have uh, my first film pandemic movie, I call it. And it's not about the pandemic, but it's a... It was filmed it's during. A, it's a really during the pandemic. In fact, it was the first independent movie to be greenlit during the pandemic. So it was, it was quite a challenge um, to be able to pull that off. But that being said, um, it's called Ted Bundy, American Boogeyman. 
um, mm. starring Chad Michael Murray, uh, um, playing the infamous serial killer Ted Bundy. I think doing a really great job of portraying him to be the monstrous serial killer destroyer of lives that he was and not making him, you know, for lack of a better word of, you know, uh, a kind of like a cultural hero. Um, I think that's exactly the opposite of the movie that I set out to make. And um, he tried to make one that was, you know, true to the, the, the essence of the story. Um, not a documentary, so, you know, certainly some creative license was taken here and there, but it was really to kind of show Bundy and killers like him that they, that they were not worthy of being put on a t-shirt. You know, yeah. I feel like there's this strange subculture out there that worships these sadistic monsters and it troubles me. It's not like having a Michael Myers t-shirt because we all know that he is fictional. Um, but when people run around with Charles Manson t-shirts and it's just weird. Ted Bundy t-shirts and, and glorify these people, it, it troubles me on a very primal level. And so this movie and then movie I made a couple of years ago that got me in a lot of hot water called The Honey of Sharon Tate um, uh, is my reaction to this kind of glorifying of, of murderers, which I find horrific. Hmm. And my last question is fairly easy. Uh, do you have any advice to those who are screenwriters, filmmakers, producing, acting, what have you, especially in the performing arts, especially in filmmaking? Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> you know, follow. It's so much advice, but, um, you know, follow your, your passion and tell stories that are meaningful to you. Um, don't give up because it's you know, it's the last man standing a lot of times, um, but also recognize your, your abilities. You know, some people aren't cut out for it, you know, and, there, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's, there are other things to do in life than make films if it's not really what your calling is or what your passion is or what you're kind of good at. Yeah. Um, but I think that um, I would always say, just tell stories that are meaningful and are, are heartfelt um, and whether that means to scare people or to make people cry or make them laugh, you know, kind of go, go for it and tell it only the way that you can tell it. And on that note, thank you. Uh, thank you, Daniel, for being a, a great guest on today's podcast. I know we ran a lot late. I, I don't mind it, but sometimes, uh, sometimes he's, uh, sometimes when the, the direction, I mean, well, not, sometimes when the, the conversation goes longer than expected, we get a lot of great coverage out of topics and yeah, yeah I, you had a funny. great time being a great guest. I mean, uh, a guest on the show. Um, I hope you all enjoyed listening to us talk about films, uh, how horror wise documentary stuff uh, or just filmmaking in general. So yeah. Uh, take care everyone. Please be safe and be well. You too. Thanks again for having me. Of course.